Cutting for Sign with Ron Cecil and Daniel Pinterklein. The bad white men call him the devil. The Yavapai call him eyes like the sky. Welcome to Cutting for Sign. This is episode 13. Today we have guest Joe Guilford. Joe Guilford, you have been a filmmaker for the last 50 years. You write screenplays, TV scripts, and stage plays. You're the winner of a New York Emmy and have received two Alfred P. Sloan Foundation grants. You earned your BFA at NYU's Institute of Film and TV and spent a decade as a stage director in New York in the 80s and 90s. You're the son of actors Jack Guilford. Madeline Lee, and in 2013 adapted their experiences as blacklisted actors in the 1950s into the critically acclaimed stage play Finks. It was nominated for two Drama Desk Awards and Best New Play by the Off-Broadway Alliance and is currently in development as a feature film. Your latest feature screenplay, Mob Town, released in theaters in 2019 and stars David Arquette. In 2005, you started StoryRescue.com, which helps writers and storytellers at every level in screenwriting, playwriting, TV, and fiction. You also teach screenwriting at NYU's Tisch School of the Arts and recently put all your experience and knowledge into the book, Why Does the Screen Screenwriter Cross the Road and Other Screenwriting Secrets, which, by the way, I'm listening to on audio right now and oh, it is a pure delight. <laughs> Thank you for making Thank that. You. And welcome to Cutting great. for Sign. Thank you, uh, Ron. That was one of the, the the best introductions I've had in a long time. So thank you very much. All I did was read it. We can we can. Thank I know. You I just want to say I'm flattered <laughs> that you used my writing. It's not always that it gets on the air that quickly. Usually, you submit something for any kind of production, and you wait a lifetime for someone to not answer. But this was perfect. I appreciate it, and I'm very happy to be here. I really am. That's so great. Thank you. And that's because I'm home, and I'm always happy to be in my apartment. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I would, if I could, go to Portland, Oregon. I had a very wonderful experience in Portland many years ago because I had not one, not two, but three friends at Reed College. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. College, Reed College for the Insane, as we used to call it. <laughs> Uh, the insane and very smart. And uh, I had a terrific Easter kind of uh, school break out there one year. And I loved the campus. And I loved Portland. I dined at a little restaurant called L'Auberge. Hmm. Not there anymore. I'm Not sure. around anymore. Yeah. And a Chinese restaurant down near the waterfront called Hung Far Lo, right it's, on the second floor. It's still there. Yeah. It's still there. Well, this yeah, one's talking about 1970. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, Before yeah. the Civil War. So it was there. It was old when we were there. And it was a wonderful, huge red banquet kind of old style Mandarin restaurant. Yeah. I, I had a wonderful time when I was out there. And we went out to Indian Beach. Does that make sense? Is there a place called Indian Beach? Uh, Rooster Rock. Maybe, and we pl- we 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 did. Did you have clothes on? Those two things don't sound anything alike. <laughs> no, I don't know if they do, but we we were on a beach that was all pebbles and and uh, yeah. uh, gravel, and it was beautiful. We played. We got very high. We played touch football, <laughs> <laughs> and that brings us back to the way I talked about touch football before. Exactly. We <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought up Reed College because. 
um, there's a spiritual memoir written by a guy named Donald Miller who moved to Portland in the 90s to get a honorary degree from there. Not a really an honorary. He just moved here to, to take classes at Reed and, um, you know, took the classes like Daniel took your class uh, and audited them uh, and wrote a spiritual memoir called uh, Blue Like Jazz. And he, his second book, his follow-up book to that was called a, Th- a Million Miles in a Thousand Years. And it is a book on how to write a story for your life. And what I'm about to say, you might completely disagree with because you teach this and he doesn't. But he said something to in that book that when I read it 12 years ago, utterly changed my life. And that was, and the premise of the book is someone saw, read his first book, Blue Like Jazz, and said, hey, I want to turn this into a movie. So he said, okay, I'm going to learn how to write uh, screenplays. And in that process, he learned that a character is what a character does. And that if you could apply that to your life, what do you do? That's your real story. And so at the time, my wife and I, who had been married for just a few months, we may have not even been married yet. We might have just been living together. We had this old house in downtown Lexington, Kentucky, where we had lived just a few months. And we didn't spend a ton of time there, but we had this house built in 1911. And up in the attic, we had found an old uh, chalkboard. And I don't know how it even got up there, but I pulled it down, bolted it to the wall, and we began to draw out with chalk the arc of our storyline and what we wanted our life to look like as characters. Now, I'm bringing that up because I had a conversation the other day about how probably the most powerful technology humans have made is story and our ability to tell story. And right now in history, story is dictating how people are acting. Now, I didn't, don't really want to jump into politics very often with my guests, but it's a really interesting time in our history, knowing that just a few days ago, people acted on the capital of the United States because of a story they believed. And I don't really want to get into that as much as we live our lives based on a story that's being played in our head. And as a storyteller yourself, and as a person who teaches story, how important is it that we get the ability to learn story, to tell our own story, to take the elements of story, and begin to craft the character that we are? Well, that is a big question. I'm glad we have some open-ended time. First of all, I think I do agree, uh, regardless of whether you teach this or not, First of all, uh, uh, everyone's an artist. Everyone can be. Uh, whether you have talent or not is is a different. That's a different set of rules or different set of. Uh, um, uh, that's a different subject. But everyone can do all the things that we see around us. You have to train. There's no doubt about it. And train at different levels for different things. I've been always telling my students, undergrads and grads alike. That screenwriting, um, like writing pop music, is a folk art. You don't need to get a PhD to be a screenwriter. And you don't need that much training anymore, uh, actually, to be a filmmaker. Although, throughout the ages, we have been um, really entertained by filmmakers with no training and some with no talent. (laughs) 
I, I think the um, that the fellow, um, the disaster artist, um, Tommy. Yeah. Oh yeah. Great film. Um, the whole story. His whole story. Yeah. His whole story, and I'm sort of bringing this back to what you're saying. He decided to make his movie into his life, not his life into a movie. Mm -hmm. He decided to pretend to be something he wasn't and become that. Mm. And I think it was phenomenal. Um, a fellow who was involved with him in the making of his films wrote a wonderful book, a biography of him, mm. and talked about how they would go to the movies together. Any kind of movie. He had a real appetite for movies, Tommy. And they sat together in the dark. And, and when very dramatic moments happened on screen, Tommy would grab his arm really tight and hold on for the duration of that dramatic moment. It could be a car chase. It could have been a kiss. It could have been anything. But what he felt was that Tommy really, really took it seriously and was so involved when he was watching the movie. And I also tell my students, don't write a movie. Don't be writing a screenplay as if it were a film. You have to understand that it really happened. Mm. The story you're writing really happens to the characters in that story. And I'm not talking about simply fact-based adaptation. Right. I'm talking about any fiction really happens to the characters in that story. And yes, your life story really happens to you. And I believe if you're an artist, while there's a different level of sensitivity to the events in one's life and to the occurrences and the way we perceive it, I think anyone who tries to translate their experience into any kind of art form is necessarily sensitive to everything that's going on around them. Why so, do you think that? Well, I just think that's the only, that's the only fuel I have for what I do. Being sensitive to the world, the, yeah. the intake of my of external experience and how I then perceive and process that. My mood determines how hard or how uh, how how much I work. Sometimes, uh, sometimes uh, in the beleaguering world of being a writer of any kind, um, and I don't like writing. By the way, mm -hmm. I don't love it. I, I've never loved it. I don't think you should. I was listening to Fran Lebowitz, this wonderful documentary series now on Netflix that Martin Scorsese has had the good humor and wisdom to produce of simply listening to Fran Lebowitz. And she just said, if you're loving it, you're doing it wrong. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. I've, I've heard Seinfeld say, similar, say something similar with writing, and that is it's the hardest thing in the world to do. It's really difficult. It is. And as Woody Allen said, I mean, the list of, of, of sayings about writing is longer than the Bible. I <laughs> but I know that uh, Woody Allen said, oh, yeah, writing, it's either really easy or impossible. Yeah. It's interesting. And it's just what we do. I, I, what I love, I do love about it is finishing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Starting is an absolutely terrifying experience. It's also, not, it's not just terrifying. It's, oh, do I have to do this again? It's almost like a doctor's appointment, hmm. you know, or getting a, a full physical 
um, from my dermatologist. I'm about to go back to my dermatologist for my checkup. And the only reason I'm saying this is I really think she's a good doctor. And I have no particular problems after going to my checkup. So she was in my scalp and looking around. And she's very good and gentle. And, and we have a little conversation. And I have some inherited skin stuff from my father. And I have a little what they call, you know, seborrhea. You know, it's a flaking of the scalp. And, and I take care of it with the right shampoos. Not a lot of medication. I'm a pretty uh, uh, organic and over-the-counter healer. But when she looked at it, she goes, oh, I think this is psoriasis. I go, really? It's not this other thing? And she goes, no, it's psoriasis. And I go, oh, so, so what can we do about that? She goes, well, not, not really anything. <laughs> Thanks for telling me. <laughs> Thanks, Doc. I said, nothing? She goes, no, it's nothing you can do about it. And I just said, this is to, this is what writing is like. Yeah. You sit down <laughs> and you think you've got this great experience going, but you really don't. Uh, you really want to get away from it because every time you sit down to write, it doesn't really look great to me whenever I sit down to write. It never really looks great. Do you, you think, know, Joe? Yeah. Ahead, Daniel. Dan. Sorry. Uh, I was just going to say, um, Ronald and I kind of had a similar converse or a conversation around a similar issue regarding writing, which is that sometimes we'll have an experience like we're in, we're both in a writing group right now, which you encouraged, by the way, um, which we fired it up and got it going. And it's been a game changer. And we were talking about, so we've been sharing each other's writings and getting to know each other as writers. And we were just talking about how sometimes we'll like move ourselves to being really emotional and we're like, Oh my God, we're so good at what we're doing. And then either we'll show that to someone else or later we'll read it and be like, Holy shit, man, that was fucking terrible. You don't have to do what we used to do, which was get stoned and then write something uh -huh. thinking it was great while you were writing it. And then waking up the next morning and saying, what the, what, would, what is this? You don't have to take any drugs to have that experience as a writer. You just need to have time. I to think write that thing and then wake up the next morning and throw it out. Um, so, in any case, uh, uh, um, the 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 struggle of getting it right has taken me a lifetime. And because I'm a lifelong learner, as I can see, you fellows are. Um, I am never really that confident about it. I do know how to write a good sentence. People do hire me to write. Now, I like to think that means something, but I always sign a contract. And when I sign my name, I go, it's, I'm your problem now. <laughs> that, what, what, what all this reminded me of as you were talking is, is writing is hard. Really what, what it's about is, we're trying to think of something interesting and impactful that that describes something that we can um, identify with and f it feels familiar and it takes us to a, a quality of life that is otherwise unattainable, an adventure, a love, something beyond ourselves. I feel like living a life is similar. We want a bigger life. We want a more adventurous life. This podcast is called Cutting for Sign. We want to find the clues that God and the universe are leaving for us to take us to a bigger story. And I think often we don't because it's exhausting, because we can't, we don't have the creativity <laughs> to think of a better version of ourselves. 
Well, it's it's the same thing we do in art, and that's why artful people are so interesting, even if they're just like a guy who can pick up a guitar and play a song around a campfire or just someone who can tell a good joke. Um, first of all, we if we're whole people and if we are healed um, and we are following the clues, which I think you just put very well on, then we want to create the ideal. When we get married, we want the perfect marriage. When we cook, we want the best pasta. When we sit down to make art, we want it to be this impactful, well-loved thing. And I think that the process and the product shouldn't be confused. And I think a lot of people in the early stages of their aspirations, I was no different, you get the product and the process kind of confused. In other words, the process for me is much more important. Right now, I'm plagiarizing two things. I'm plagiarizing a movie, and I'm not really, but I'll, I'll get down to breaking yeah. that down. I am, I'm, I am, I am using, let's just say, the uh, structural elements in duplicate. It's a gentle word for plagiarizing for <laughs> a, a new play and for a new film. Now, I'm doing this because in August I finished a good, a really good draft of the movie version of my play, Thanks, the adaptation. That adaptation had eluded me in a really um, uh, very very upsetting way. I could not nail it. People had uh, complimented me many times on how cinematic the play is and all that. And in fact, I got away with something that a lot of playwrights do. Uh, where Mamet used the blackout and the sudden end of a scene to create impact that might not be there. I use a technique in a couple of my plays where scenes overlap or mm. scenes sort of end and then and then a character walks into another scene, uh, still talking in the previous scene, but finishing the scene in the next scene. So this overlap, uh, people called cinematic. It's really not. It's not. It's literary, if anything, and it still sits in the stage drama category. So I couldn't lick Finks as a movie. I just couldn't get it set. And then I woke up one morning. It was based on one of my favorite recent films called Itonia. I had wanted to convert the story from the man's point of view to the woman's. That's opportunistic, by the way, although my mother is a very strong character fictionalized in the play. I wanted it from her point of view, and I couldn't crack it, and I finally did. And basically, I turned it into a mockumentary. That was what I used. So in other words, I didn't, the impact of the story was already there. I had the advantage of having created whole characters, which I was going to then recycle and cannibalize and put into a new pro, which is the greatest thing about any intellectual property is it belongs to you and you can recycle it into any other medium you want. So I licked it and I finished it in August. And then school came along and I had a particularly big schedule and I didn't want to do anything extra. Then something else happened. And I think maybe, Ron, this is where Dan said we might really connect. And that is, I have been broke for as long as I can remember. (laughs) I've been financially, you know, underground, under the the zero level for a generation of my own life. Mm. And I never knew what it was like to be comfortable financially because just for all sorts of other reasons. So I I refinanced my condo (laughs) and I got a really good deal and I put a huge amount of money back in my pocket and the sun came out and the clouds went away and I had surplus money in my bank account, not because I was earning any more. I was working my buns off 
for a certain amount of money that's adequate to live in the city. With that recovery accomplished, the edge to everything I felt disappeared. Mm. I was no longer anxiety-ridden about this. And if you've ever been in debt for long periods of time or under-earning, as I was, yes. then you know what this is like. And we've all been at that stage, you know? Yeah. And once that happened, I had to look at my writing in a whole new way. So I had lunch with a friend of mine, my friend Ed, a wonderful playwright from West Virginia. He talks like that, and he said to me, Joe, he says, you better know why the fuck you write. <laughs> and I said, thank you. <laughs> that was it. He had said that. Well, you better know why you write. And that took me on this sort of thinking episode. Not writing, just thinking. Well, I realized something. I enjoy the clerical aspects of writing screenplay. Mm. I enjoy writing dialogue and description and scene numbering and writing capitals and non-capitals. And so I just went for that. It's almost like what a musician might do in just a free-form jam of some kind. And so I did that for a while. And then I started focusing on some literature that I had liked as a college student, a popular 19th century playwright that I really like. And now I'm sort of copying some stuff that he did. There's a very important little thriller that I always liked when I was in high school, really turned me on to filmmaking. So I sort of, I got found the screenplay to that movie. I watched it again and I made my own little beat sheet. And all the while, what I'm telling you is it's not really writing what I was doing. But what I was doing was looking at the insides of these movies, almost taking myself back to the basics of my film training and then extracting what I could and making it into something that's a piece of drama and entertainment. But not once to have I started thinking about if it's important or not. Hmm. What's important to me is doing it. And so if you are stuck not writing, start typing. And if you're stuck not painting, start painting. <laughs> it's interesting. Or like, or like not, not painting, but I think what I, what I experience as a, as a painter is sometimes when I don't want to paint, I just need to get my easel out because I enjoy like cleaning my brushes and I enjoy um, redoing my palette, you know, and and I actually do enjoy that stuff. It's the capital letters and the uh, note in the formatting, you know, of, of painting. And next thing you know, that gap between me and actually putting brush to canvas is very manageable. Well, what was going to my mind as you're talking, Joe, was, um, you know, Joseph Campbell's idea of pursuing what lights us up and even though the you know the act act of writing isn't the gratification in that moment the process which you described and daniel and i talk about this all the time how the process is as important probably more important than the finished outcome you found the part of the process or finding the part of the process that lights you up thankfully you had enough bandwidth to do that because you had the the pressure relief valve of of a windfall happened to you. And I, and I think, you know, the majority of Americans are living under that feeling of under earning of being in debt of, and, and it can't be under or overstated how important that can change your life. Just moving from one bracket to the next, even just taking off debt. But what, what I was thinking about was how important it is to pursue that, which gives you life and light. 
because you it will lead you to something more. In in my process of writing, similar to what you guys had just said with for your crafts, I find a lot of delight in the minutia of a scene. So I'm writing a screenplay or a story, I'm sorry, about that takes place in an area of the world called Alano Estacado, which is this no man's land on the border of Texas and New Mexico. And I will find myself looking at like charts of macro climate change there and what prehistoric animals lived there and how long have people been near there. And, and those things begin to open doors of story and, and new twists and turns for me that just continue to keep me going forward. Or, or it's, you know, a lot of uh, oil field workers are in this story. And so I'll look up, you know, oil production in the 1980s, <laughs> that kind of thing. And that I'll read some stat about it. Like, there it is. That's the line I'm looking for. That's the path I'm looking for. And I head out on it. But I want to. Well, I'm, a, I'm a research geek myself, too, even on things that I know a lot about, like my parents uh, experience. My mother was alive while I was still writing the play. And so I was able to just call her up on the phone anytime I got stuck with a fact or, or an event. But. I think also research for a screenwriter or a dramatic writer or a fiction writer, research leads to story. Yeah. And going back to one of the first things you said, um, Ron, was that it was, um, I asked students who say, well, what am I going to write about? And I said, you're going to write about a person. <laughs> and that unlocks everything yeah. for them. Yeah. Start with character. That's my biggest advice. That's my biggest advice. Just start with a person and don't worry about story quite yet. Mm -hmm. And I was telling this to Dan called me uh, with, with some things he was stuck with on his project. And I'm always happy to, to give advice. But the idea is to get it out there, get the clay on the wheel, as I like to say. Um, and and just, just start massaging this thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes, enjoy it now. Because as you get deeper into it, you're going to lose that enjoyment. I also tell my students, and these are mostly undergrads, they say, can come to me after about three or four weeks of a, of a semester, and they go, I don't like my idea anymore. And it happens all the time. Yeah. And I go, that's, I go, that's okay. You'll make it better. I said, the dating is over. You've had your first kiss. Now you're married, and you've got to work. Oh, that's good. That's really good. And that's it. And they look at me like, you mean like my parents? And I go, <laughs> yes. Isn't that scary? <laughs> but there's so many aphorisms you can throw at it. Um, but you guys have conquered a huge um, uh, battle here, and that is getting, getting your work shown to other people. Because screenwriters, more than any other writers, and fiction writers to a lesser extent, um, don't really get to publicly display their work until it's too late. Yeah. And um, I encouraged in the last graduate program when I met Dan, I encouraged this uh, UCLA director of the program to have readings of the scripts, which are not traditional in the screenwriting world. As a playwright, though, that's the first thing you do is you get a couple of actors together, a couple of chairs, and a few friends in your living room. Mm -hmm. And you put on your play. You can do the same with your screenplay. So you've conquered a huge, a huge thing that will feed your creativity and your process, which is other people. And yeah, it's Fran, Fran Leibowitz was talking about it last night. And she said when Bloomberg, uh, uh, the mayor, 
uh, uh, outlawed smoking in bars and restaurants. She said, do you understand what a threat this is to the artistic community? Yeah. <laughs> what if what if Picasso was sitting in a cafe and he had, and you know, the whole exchange of artists talking with each other about their work is hugely important to our growth as artists. The social life that we create yeah. around our work. She said, what if Picasso had to step outside for a cigarette? What imagine what he could have missed at that table at the like Du Magot in Paris in 1920-something? And and that is a community you really need. I cannot tell you how important it is. So congratulations for having organized that. Yeah, thank you, man. It's been a game changer for literally all four of us. Uh, I think you even suggested it was either you or the guy who's running it, which is who I went to after talking to you and to see if he would you know, help facilitate it. And he's at a, a dramatically uh, more advanced level of writing than we are. Um, and, and then Ron's at a place and I'm at a place and this other guy uh, out on the um, East coast, he's at a different place too. And it's just very, very cool to see how it facilitates each of our processes and supports them. It, the process in the ex in the in several different ways, but are, that are very different from each other. One might be very exploratory. Hey, I need a safe space to play in the sandbox, so I'm not going to like bash my head on a corner. You guys got my back. Gotcha. Another guy. I just need to be accountable. I just need some a, a deadline. That's all I need. Done. You know, another person. I never show shit to other people. You know, and it freaks me out. I need that. Thumbs up. You know, and it's just like it's checking all these boxes for everybody. It's been just fucking game changer. Well, having your work, um, I don't know how you do it, but in the writers group that changed my world, um, we read our entire work out loud together. We oh, hand wow. out copies of the script and we each play roles in the uh, screenplay or play and uh, then we critique it and then we go out drinking and socializing, which is, again, very much part of the experience. Yeah. And... Um, uh, that for me was just as good as having a reading with actors. In fact, they were former actors or current people, actors who were interested in writing in this particular writers group, which was attached to uh, my home theater in New York, Ensemble Studio Theater. It's just really important. Remember, uh, you're writing as a script writer, whether it's screenplays or plays, you're writing for performance. Your work, unlike fiction, unlike poetry, is meant to be performed by professional actors or even non-professional actors, but it's meant to be acted out in something that resembles this real-life experience, even if it's Star Wars, even if it's The Hobbit. It's still this real-life experience for the character, and therein is the emotional action of what you're doing. Screenplays you Yeah. I was just going to ask, how would you say that uh, it would be different in a piece of fiction, and how would that difference show up on the page? You know, I'm not much of a fiction writer, although I do write prose. I write treatments sometimes for my my screenplays before I actually write the script. Um, you know, fiction is not something that's meant to be read aloud necessarily you we go to readings we listen to someone read from their collection of short stories or from their new novel we do go to hear people read poetry and listen when i heard alan ginsburg read howl when i was 17 years old it was an electric experience it's much better than reading it to yourself but 
it's not, let's say, the tradition for literature. Um, plays, you know, Shakespeare knew very well there was going to be an audience watching actors. And that is the most important experience. So I don't know if there's an equivalent in fiction. Fiction, I believe, is, you know, li listen, literature is a literary experience. And it's interesting how great works of literature are not easy to adapt to drama, to scripted drama. It's yes. not, they've struggled with Great Gatsby how many times? Yeah. Never really, truly, successfully. They struggled with Hemingway a number of times. But boy, a Stephen King, although it's literature, that stuff just jumps onto the screen. Because Stephen King comes from a generation of writers, while they did study Fitzgerald and Hemingway and Conrad and Edith Wharton and all the great you know, novelists and Melville. Stephen King is a kid that was raised in the TV generation like I was. He was raised on movies, and this stuff got into his head. Ask him about Twilight Zone. Ask him if that changed his life as a writer. Ask him about Ray Bradbury, who was a TV writer and a fiction writer. So I'm just going back to the idea that the first step is getting your work into the hands of people who can look at it and talk to you about it. The next step is reading it aloud because you want to hear that performance quality of your work. Very well, important. It's it's interesting because I was just looking up the name. I'm reading this book or listening to this book right now by a, an author named Otessa. And I can't, Moshfi, Moshfig, I think is her name. Anyway, I was, I've been looking for a, a book that was entertaining and funny, but also could be serious for a long time. And I just haven't been able to find it. And so I, I, I just have just been, I talked to you the other day, you gave me like 10 or 15 books that we were talking about comedy, you know, just to try them out. Cause comedy is so hard to get from the page sometimes. And, and so I listened to this lady's book and within five minutes I was, I was in rap, you know, with, I was laughing out loud and I just felt like a, it was a gold mine. Well, then I was thinking, I was imagining how the words would look on the page, you know, in the, just in the dialogue. And I was like, oh, I don't know if this is as funny as I think it is. I think it's being read exquisitely. Like the lady who was performing it was crushing it. And I realized, where did she find this thing that she said? Because that would just look like these two words on a page. And, you know, so ah, it's, it's tricky in that respect. Well, when you're reading a book, you don't add time to what you're doing. An actor adds time because they're adding yeah. experience to what Oh, that's doing. a good point. Yeah. The, the, the actor's experience is this character that's happening right in front of you. It seems spontaneous, of course. Also, we are so completely hypnotized by what we see on either the stage or uh, on films. Look what we're asked to, to disregard in terms of believing a reality of some yeah. kind. Yet this guy, Tommy, is watching a movie and falling into an emotional state of such, I call it hypnosis. It is. And we all get hypnotized by these, these things we watch on screen because they seem so real, even when they're not so well done. What, what were you going to say, uh, Ron? You, you had... Well, the, as you guys are talking, I keep thinking about how this translates to life. Like, how does this translate to, yeah. to a person living? And number one, you can't do it in a vacuum. The story you want to tell has to be told and retold in front of a live studio audience. In other words, you need that community 
to give you the feedback so that it reminds me of the joke. What's the best part of telling a joke? It's timing. Timing, yes. Timing. Right. <laughs> I, we, we tell it in a different way, right? Timing. Yeah. And you and and you need that uh almost uh un, untangible feedback from your audience, your the people listening to your story, watching your story, watching your life. And that's what changed my life 12 years ago was realizing like I want to end my life at the end of my days if we're from a hospital bed or from rowing out to the ocean to never be seen again i want to be so satisfied you're upsetting the, me ron <laughs> <laughs> by the character well there's a reason i moved to oregon uh just kidding uh you know there's an idea that that i want my life to be interesting to me primarily i want to enjoy the experience of living and i want to enjoy it so that uh, not only for, for my own experience, but I want it to impress my children enough, not from what I've done, but to give them the freedom to make choices, to make, um, to create their own story, to give them the ability to, to have artistic say in how they begin to live their life. It sounds like you had an experience like that with your parents. They inspired you to become a story writer, their story, which I'd love to hear a little bit about, um, informed your life. It informed the way that you have lived your life. And I, and that's the gift I'm trying to give my parents, my, or my children. My parents had very interesting lives, probably mostly despite themselves, right? They were, they were either a character is what they do or a character is what they experience. And I'd have to say my dad in particular, who is often the subject of my writing, is is like the he's experiencing bad things or he's continuing to make choices bad choices that leads him down darker roads so t- tell me a little bit about the dark roads your parents went down in the 50s well it was you know uh not in, not not part of their plan but then again i was telling dan this the other day when you when you write a good dramatic story um uh, you are uh, your character has a plan your mm-hmm. character's plan it's very close to life your plan in life is satisfaction yeah that's right. Your plan in life is contentment, tranquility, happiness, and prosperity, right? But we never get tired of the stories that tell us the struggle the characters need to perform to get there. Yeah. And my parents' life couldn't have been better than any fiction because they became heroes unintentionally, which is what your character is going to discover that they're a hero in some other way, although we're trying to be maybe a hero in another way. And I'll go back to Star Wars because these are movies that I don't have a high regard for, but observe some of the great storytelling strategies that we we like. And that is the character believes they're going to go get this thing. And you as a writer, it's your job to kick their ass and teach them a lesson that will last. Now, my parents didn't need to be taught this lesson, but perhaps History needed to be taught the lesson. And I think the culture they lived in needed to be taught this lesson. And it was a hard lesson. Um, they were actors in uh, theater and TV and radio and film. Uh, and in the 1950s, as an aftermath to what we know as the Hollywood blacklist, you know it as the Hollywood 10, the screenwriters, um, how Ronald Reagan betrayed the entire SAG union when he was president of the union by giving names to the. House Un-American Activities Committee. 
And while many people sort of confuse this with Joe McCarthy, although it is attached, Joe McCarthy was a senator. And Joe McCarthy's investigations were about the federal government and communists that could be working for the State Department, Hmm. most notably a guy named Alger Hisson. Richard Nixon was involved in that. The committee noticed something, and they noticed that when you, and they noticed something that movie producers knew for decades. If you cast stars in your story, people will want to see it. (laughs) When you put Robert Taylor on the stand, when you put Ronald Reagan on the stand, when you put a Ginger Rogers in front of the committee, people would tune into this new thing called television. And all of a sudden, Ginger Rogers was over here, and some nobody congressman from Pennsylvania was over here, and now he was also on the same level as Ginger Rogers or Ronald Reagan or Robert Taylor or Adolf Manju or John Wayne or Victor McLaughlin, these big stars of the 1940s. And they realized they would keep this going. So that was one factor in the blacklist. The other factor was just playing the politics, the success of politics and the politics of success. And that was if you pursued communists, you got votes. So they moved the committees east and they started to uh, target actors in TV and radio. Now, what was different here was that the movie studios were simply anti-union. And so the blacklist was a great way to defeat unions in Hollywood, especially the Screenwriters Guild, which was being formed by the writers in the Hollywood 10 at that time. TV and radio was a little different, but TV and radio, the shows were owned by the sponsors. And the sponsors didn't want to think that they were employing communists or subversives in their shows. Now, my parents were simply political leftists. I would say the equivalent of Bernie Sanders or AOC in our time. Yeah. But at that time, that was called subversive. And they were, my mother had been a member of the Young Communist League. My father was never really the member of anything, but he used to entertain regularly at these benefit performances. He helped raise money for uh, the widows of a mining disaster in, in, in Pennsylvania wow. or a, uh, a school integration program somewhere in the South. And, and these types of causes, um, health care, uh, equal opportunity employment, very radical ideas. In right. So it, because of that, their name ended up in this sort of um, this publication called Red Channels. And Red Channels was an independent publication run by these people who were also getting money from the anti-communists. Those names were then fed to the columnists in the newspapers at that time. Um, uh, uh, Jack O'Brien, Dorothy Kilgallen, uh, Walter Winchell, of course, and a a guy named Ed Sullivan, who later became king of variety television. He was a major columnist and what you call a red baiter at that time. Your name got into the columns and all of a sudden the committee was interested in you. You were called to testify and you were asked to name the names of your friends and colleagues who were also fellow travelers with you. And those people who decided to, uh, um, to, to acquiesce, to the it was basically an inquisition were Finks, and they mm. named names. Mm. Among them was Elia Kazan. Uh, among them was Jerome Robbins, who named my mother. We don't know who named my father. There's no record of it. But he named only eight people. And my mother, who was an old friend of his, and taught him how to do the Lindy, by the way. That's absolutely true. He did not know any modern uh, uh, popular dances when he came out of the ballet when he was a young man. Wow. So in any case, people who were Finks named names, 
for their self-preservation. And my father and my mother and Zero Mostel and, of course, the Hollywood Ten and all of their community resisted that, and they took, uh, they invoked their rights of the Fifth Amendment. In some, the, the Hollywood Ten invoked their rights to the First Amendment, and they were jailed for contempt of court. So by the time it came to New York, the Fifth Amendment was the tool used to protect yourself from not naming names. And so that's what they did and, and in their way became heroes. But I have to honestly tell you, I don't think any of us would name names. I don't, I don't see the point of knowing how you're, by naming names, you became a fink. There was no yeah. word for, there was the, the uh, word for a person who didn't name names was unfriendly witness. And I think there's some books titled that. There might be a movie about it. But in other words, there is nothing as derogatory for someone like my parent. So in that sense, they basically taught me in a way the common sense of standing up for a value, not just standing up for your survival. And I think that is the long version of how this whole thing sort of happened. Came a time in my life that I felt it would make a good story and there you have it. That's amazing. That, Thank that's, you. Uh, I'm glad I was able to capsulize that. <laughs> it's a longer version, by the way. It's called you know, Fink. It, yeah. <laughs> so when when you when I've heard the phrase rat fink, like in old movies, is that synonymous with each other? Or is Actually, that the fink version? is the fink is a, is more or less the Yiddish term. Uh, it's a German word, fink, oh. and um, a rat, stool pigeon, were all that used. Basically, yeah. by mobsters and criminals. Gotcha. And that you were supposed to be loyal. And in a way, on the waterfront, which is included in my play for some interesting reasons, uh, I also uh, duplicate and dramatize the testimony of Ilya Kazan, Lee J. Cobb, and Bud Schulberg. Bud Schulberg wrote the screenplay to On the Waterfront. Kazan directed it, and uh, Lee J. Cobb was the star in it as well with Brando. Um, the movie is about the wonders and joys of being an informer. Hmm. But in this case, the informer is informing on murderers, arsonists, people who are criminals. Yeah. In the day that my parents were named, they had done nothing criminal except that the government deemed it subversive. And because of what was called the, um, oh God, it just slips my mind, the, uh, not the Sullivan Act, the Smith Act. Um, uh, was that anything that opposed democratic government, such as being a member of the Communist Party, was deemed subversive. And therefore, you were allowed to be investigated. And that was really what, really what caused this sort of cycle. And it goes back to the early days of the House and American Activity Committee, which was the Palmer Raids, raids on anarchists during uh, World War I and German sympathizers. And then later in the 20s and 30s, the investigations of the New Deal theater companies like the uh, Mercury Theater, Orson Welles, and that whole story of Cradle Will Rock is also a story of the early blacklist in the 1930s. With that said, this country's been dedicated to defeating this element in our society for a long time. The 50s got the most publicity because it was televised and because it involved movie stars. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. I, I, I heard um, someone describe, this is going to seem like a big leap, but it, but it reminds me of 
what you said a few minutes ago, which was they noticed what carried story forward, having a beautiful face attached to some kind of politician. And this is carrying the story forward. And I think why, like, why did, why are people wanting to believe such outrageous things nowadays? <laughs> That's a good question. And, it's a good story. And I realized and because, it's yeah. because it's a good story and they get to play yeah. a part in that story. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have meaning in your life and meaning that carries your own yeah. story forward, you want to be attached to a story that is, that's number one, uh, binary. In other words, you know who the good guys are, you know who the bad guys are, and you know that they need help. And so you are going to volunteer. And that's what these folks thought they were doing by showing up in, uh, last Thursday in the, in the United States Capitol. Well, you know, also, it's, really, it's not a political problem. It's psychological, isn't it? Yes, that's exactly right on it. Yeah. There is a hole in these people. Yeah. I believe. I believe there is healing that has not occurred with many of these people. Yep. Um, and the anger that they're expressing is very real. It's the anger, of course, of the disenfranchised, but it's the anger of, of the abused, the anger of yes. the hurt. You have to fill a huge hole. So wouldn't you fill that hole with something that says you're a hero? Yeah. Join us. That's exactly you're right. You're a hero. And they're, they're, they're in is the cult status that we're seeing here. We're all, I think, aware of that. No different than other cults. I think I can say that Scientology, we can agree, is a cult. And and I know people who are part of it. And they will tell me, I joined because there was a big hole in me. Mm. I needed to heal. I needed some stuff. I needed something that I didn't have. And herein is the good fictional part of it. They had a path to satisfaction, which is what I call it, and they pursued this thing when, in fact, pursuing it, being the mistake that it was, led them to the right thing, ultimately. And that's what any good story will be, normally. The character goes directly for this thing they think is going to work for them, and, of course, it leads them through this sort of crucible which is the climax of this story, and boom. So let us pray for these people, too. And I'm not necessarily a religious guy. I'm a a person of great faith. You'd have to be. But I also think, isn't it interesting that there is this myth of pedophilia surrounding these strange conspiracy theories? And I believe if you were a victim of this as a child, and we've learned how widespread this is, in certain communities. Yeah, one in five. If you were a victim of that and someone said to you, if we fight back, we can destroy that memory. If we tell this story, we can erase that other story. Yeah. So that's where it becomes, I think, odd and and pathological in a way. So I think you really put your finger on it there. I, I know I'm looking at these people, I'm going, they're broken. Yeah. It reminds me, I, I grew up in southeastern New Mexico, and and I grew up on the peripheral of, of very intense um, gang culture. Mm. And uh, even in high school, um, I went to a high school that was so violent, um, we had a, a booking station in the high school. In other, in other words, they were expecting <laughs> to make arrests. A one-stop shop. Yeah, they were expecting I, to make arrests. They were going to book you in the high school. Weapon. It was just... It was just another club you could join. That's right. Club and right, you could join, you know, a <laughs> felony club. It was great. Well, I I was shot at um, in a drive-by shooting, or when I was probably 
15, 16 years old. That wasn't uncommon in my town. And, and why did those boys go do those things? Well, they had a hole in their heart. They wanted to find community. They wanted to find belonging. They needed something outside of themselves to feel, to fill that void in their life. How do I get into this group? This, this, this group that is, um, uh, it's closed. It is, um, gosh, the word I'm looking for is escaping me at the moment, but it's, um, it's hard to get in, you know, it's elite. Exclusive. Uh, Exclusive. Thank you. And the way to get in is to show your bravery. I, someone um, in the mid 2000s was, went over to Afghanistan and went over to the Middle East. I know they're very far apart. And they're asking these, these like new Taliban recruits, like, why are you here? And they're like, easy, money and girls. Like it had nothing to do with this bigger deal that we think that they're all about. But it was, it was like they were looking to fill this void in their life and they wanted an escape from their normalcy. They wanted to rewrite the story of their life. They wanted adventure. There was, there was a billboard in England. I used to live in a, a neighborhood in England that was a Muslim neighborhood. And there was a billboard that said, young men, do not blow yourself up. The Quran forbids it. And they had tried a billboard before that that said, do not go to, uh, I think at the time it was like Syria, do not go there, it's dangerous. And that billboard actually saw an uptick in guys going over there because they're like, shit, it's dangerous. That sounds great. (laughs) And these are young people, a lot of young people who, you know, I don't know how to, you know, I was a big fan of therapy in my time and I, I took advantage of it for many years and it did definitely work on me. Definitely worked. Um, I, no, I don't really have an addictive personality, so I'm lucky. But I going back to refinancing my condo, I do realize I had a disorder connected to money. Mm. Now, it wasn't like, um, uh, you know, the, the shopping channels discovered something. Just the way the lottery discovered something about us. We're addicted to certain things. One yeah. of them is gambling. State lotteries know we're addicted to gambling, and boy, they work. Yeah. Now, that's taking the gambler's money and putting it towards something worthwhile. I think education or public works. Um, the shopping channel is a little different. The shopping channels have discovered people love to get out that credit card and buy stuff. They can't help it. Now, that is an addiction we know about called the uh, spending disorder. And there are groups in the recovery uh, community who, who take care of this. You can go to Debtors Anonymous. I turned out to be what was known as an under-earner. Yeah, I've it's heard that phrase. It's an actual category within the Debtors Anonymous community. Um, although the program itself didn't appeal to me as a regular sort of thing, it did alert me to something in me. And it has to do, and they were talking about something really important, which yeah. is self-esteem. Yep. And I think good stories reaffirm our self-esteem. Yes. Even if they're a tragedy like Macbeth or my favorite tragedy in movies is Chinatown, Hmm. they reaffirm something about what we do believe. And sometimes you have to display the negative in order to understand, oh, it's negative. And sometimes, and this is what's great about drama and what we do as dramatists is we bring this thing to life in a way that people can follow an experience. It's not just a a billboard. It's not just a come on. It's not just a commercial. It is an experience. 
and you go through this experience, you come out the other end of this like another, like that human being you're watching go through it. It's just fascinating. So if you do, this is the rewarding part. This is why I wish I loved rioting more. But when you do get it right, there is nothing more thrilling. There is nothing more thrilling than just getting a little piece of it right. Like, wow, that was a really good scene. Yeah. That was a good little play you wrote. Or you get a good review or you get nominated for an award, none of which I planned on, believe me. I did not wake up that morning and say, I'm going to write a play. It's going to be successful. I'm going to get an award, a nomination. None of that was planned. I just tried to get it right. And using your skills to get it right is really hard. But the self-esteem, the story of self-esteem and the reaffirmation of our values is, I think, why we do this. I really do. So, Joe, what was that? What was a moment or a couple of moments, uh, key plot points um, in you uh, healing, you might say, through being an under earner? That's a tough one. You know, I always felt that perhaps I never took life seriously enough. Perhaps I always felt that just sort of dancing and hopping through life that I would land in the right spot, you know? I watched my parents as actors, professional actors, wait for work to come through and get work. And then work would end. They didn't have regular jobs. My father was never really on a series regularly. Um, He made a movie then, he made a TV show, he'd be on Broadway, and he happened to be really talented. And he had drive too, by the way, not in the sense of real ambition, but he stayed on the beam. Um, I inherited something from them because I was fascinated with at first being an actor when I was like up through my high school years. And then I started making films when I was uh, in middle school and using my father's eight millimeter camera to make little home movies with my friends that had story, even though what I imitated were the abstract avant-garde tones of that time i was a huge fan of underground filmmakers of the 1960s Uh, if you know the movie scorpio rising robert downey senior his films chafed elbows and then later his his crazy features like putney's folk so i was a big fan of those crazy abstract movies which gave me a lot of freedom because you could just sort of do anything you know and it was just images So I didn't have to really think of values very much. Then I sort of graduated in, I went to NYU, I went into production, I became a production assistant, and then I sort of fell back into the theater and also was doing documentary work. And the whole idea of a coherent story came late to me. I didn't know really what I was supposed to do if I wanted to be a director. I knew I had to find a script and have meetings and all that, but it didn't, those skills didn't come to me readily. It took me till my early forties until I started to write in earnest. And so I didn't really have my first big success till I hit 60. And that was Finks, you know, I had had small successes before that, but, um, and I'd made a short film at NYU. So I think the healing was in sort of, there's a point where I resisted making sense of my life. Because I sort of believe that life doesn't necessarily make sense, but you do need to have some sort of drive towards some sort of goal. I really do think that. And I was sort of goal averse. I Hmm. thought it was for squares. I really did. I thought you just sort of pay 
painted and painted until the picture came clear. And it took, that takes a lot more time than focusing. Now, people can do that and people can succeed at that, I believe. I would not teach anyone to do what I did. It kind of sounds like you, that's what you did. (laughs) You just took the long route. I wouldn't advise (laughs) that. I think I went through a lot of pain. I really do. Yeah, I went through a lot of a lot of unneeded kind of um, um, just sort of staying on the periphery rather than diving into well, the world I you, wanted to be in. You told me yesterday when we were talking, it was one of the best conversations I've had. And I have a lot of good conversations, man. I'm very blessed in that I'm way. Very flattered, yeah, my God. And uh, you know, you're you're a special guy, man. You really <laughs> are, and you've been really meaningful in my life. Um, and I, I haven't seen you, you since I met you in 2012. But this is the first I've laid eyes on you. I know it's true, man. I was thinking the seven same or eight thing. years, right? <laughs> it's a miracle, it's a miracle. But but Joe and I have these epic talks, and I I was joke I was joking with Ronald. I was like, every time I talk to Joe, I'm laughing before I say hello. Like <laughs> I haven't even gotten hello out, and I'm laughing. It's it's anyways. I, I mentioned this. Powerful. This to yeah, say, you're always uh, calling me about a girlfriend or something. You <laughs> to have a conversation about that. Why are you Dan, just lift her. Dan, stop crying. Listen to me. Just leave her. Get rid of her. Walk away from it. That's, That's easy to do with anything. Yeah, right. You, you, yeah, coming from a man who's in like a very healthy relationship I and have these every I've had too many relationships. Well, um, I mentioned all of that because you were telling me yesterday in this conversation that you, uh, yeah, it was just a poignant moment, man. You share, I didn't know. You said you quit smoking and you just, you were kind of joking, but not joking. You're like, I cried for a month. I did. I cried for a month. <laughs> I did. I wept like so, I cried in everything. Like when I was like eight or nine years old, you know, sometimes you just cry, you know? <laughs> and uh, um, that's what would happen to me. But I realized something that that addiction, and that was my only addiction really, was smoking. I was, I'm a recovered smoker. I'm smoke free now for. 16 years. God bless Congrats. Michael Bloomberg, who stopped me from smoking, Mayor yeah. Bloomberg. In any case, um, um, that addiction opened my eyes to the fact that I believe any addiction, since we're talking about healing and recovery, anything, any addiction is there to mediate despair. Yes, that's right. There are people who are so filled up with sadness and despair that the next straw is the one that crushes them and they must flee to substance. They must flee to sex. They must flee to a distraction that pulls them out of that because we are only human. We're very, you know, um, animals don't have the curse. Maybe um, some primates do, but animals, I don't think animals get their feelings hurt. They get their dignity kind of affronted sometimes, or their um, their primacy is sometimes challenged in their communities. But I don't think they ever go up to someone in their wolf pack and go, dude, you know, what you said the other day, you should think about your shit, man. You know, no, I don't think that happens. I, I think we are a sensitive species yeah otherwise we wouldn't have produced all this mind-boggling amount of 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 art and experience that addresses these things so when i discovered the addiction was this way to cut despair or to resolve despair without actually resolving it then i sort of understood what addiction was about and and 
thank God that this was the really the worst it could be was was smoking. I do like my wine. I do. <laughs> but it's it's not out of control. And as I, I once worked for many days with a guy who was um, a very active uh, person in recovery and had been um, uh, alcohol-free for 35 or 40 years and was a sponsor-type person. And, and he said to me, are you an alcoholic? And, and I said, I don't know. I drink. I like to drink. And sometimes I drink too much. He goes, when you drink, does it ruin your life? And I went, no. He goes, oh, you're, you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, you know, smoking didn't ruin my life, but it was this terrible risk I was taking, which I didn't need to take. And it was definitely an addiction. Yeah. And that I had to stop. Joe so Gilford, we're out of time. This is... Oh, my God. What did I do is, with it? Um, <laughs> I feel like we're going to need a part two for sure. Okay. Maybe a three or four. So we'll, we'll bring you back oh, on. Oh, baby. Thank you. This so has much been for, really enjoyable. Gosh, I hope, I hope you got. I hope you got something out of it. Well, I, I we got a lot out of it, and I can't wait for you to hear Thank this you. because uh, Daniel and I do a, do a little uh, closing ceremony afterwards that we call the field dressing, and um, yeah, it's commentary <laughs> about everything. But it's beautiful. You you've given us a lot of uh, gold nuggets today, a lot of treasure to share to the world. And, and namely oh, one is, you know, character is really what they're doing. And, and there is a way, there is a path to write a better story for your life. And, and I love how you gave us really tactile um, advice on how to do that. And not only for your own life, but as, well, as for writers, which I'm an aspiring writer. When Daniel was describing our, our group, he was being really, really uh, diplomatic on, go, on not saying what a beginner writer I am, <laughs> but I am. Very There's beginning. no sin in being at the beginning of anything, my friend. <laughs> yeah, and, not uh, according to not, not according to the... somewhere. I mean, I still yeah. feel like a beginner. If that makes you feel any better, oh, I good. really do. It's just like you know, I don't, I don't believe. You know, everyone also you you may define um, beginner and advanced in a different way. Certainly, doing it over and over, yeah. doing it as much as you can for as long as you can, you can't go wrong. Mm. You can't go wrong. If you just do it as much as you can for as long as you can, you know, that's, you know, pro- prodigious. That. I'm going to hold you on bet. to that. Thank go you. Go for it. Thank oh, you so keep much. Keep going. Keep going. The Beatles had no musical training. Hmm. That's good to know. That's good to know. Okay. Okay. But they kept doing, John and Paul wrote a song every day in Hamburg hmm. and fought bitterly together. They were only 18 or 19 years old. And they wrote a song a day. That's and great. That's they just kept on doing it and doing it, and they rammed it down the throats of the people who wanted to. to, to, definitely, to have we're it. definitely going to have you back, Joe Gilford. Thank you so much. Appreciate all right. it. All right, guys. See you Love later. You all. Okay. Am I here? Welcome to The Field Dressing. Today we talk to Joe Guilford, screenwriter, playwright, and professor at NYU, among other places. What a freaking delight Joe is. (laughs) I'm glad you feel that way. You got that, huh? I, I, he's the kind of guy that I want to smoke cigarettes with. Shooting the shot. I'm so glad he brought that up. I, I used to be, you know, casual smoker, um, social smoker, and 
I would have liked to have thought I would have had one of, you know, our last cigarettes together 16 years ago before he quit. <laughs> so, you know, it's funny. He was talking about Picasso and how the, um, that law, someone said to him that that law might have half jokingly, yeah, you know, caused a lot of artistic connections not to happen. And then yeah. later in the podcast, he was like, that law saved my life. <laughs> and I was thinking, <laughs> oh, you know, <laughs> maybe there's a lot of artists that, you know, well, the lady he was, re- he was referring to that said it, it's like, is like known for as a smoke, like there's caricature drawings of her smoking yeah. cigarettes. Like okay. She, Got yeah, it. Yeah. It's kind of her thing. It's kind of her Got thing. Got it. <laughs> uh uh there's a i forget her name but there's a documentary on her on netflix right now that just came out that's like oh a big deal is she um, an artist or something i think she's a uh, I, I haven't watched it so anything i'm about to say is probably bullshit so i think she was a new york ta- like a new yorker commentator like social commentator oh. uh, and and wrote for vanity fair and other big publications and martin scorsese did the <clears throat> documentary on her i mean she's she's a well-known voice in new york oh that's right he said scorsese did it yeah big deal yeah um i tell you i'm really glad we had him on and i'm glad that he you know he was really happy to be on i could tell and the, the way he you know just the build up to it and and um you know just that he like you don't get any pretension off that guy you know like his time is valuable and he was like let me give it to you because even yeah. though it's you know i i could go on i was just very happy and then you know his his take on things you know and he was really he was really available to look at what he does through the lens of what we're going for you know yeah, yeah. and your your vision for cutting for sign and he would come back to that and i would like to have talked about that more and I feel like that we could do another conversation with him because there was a few, you know, now we got all that. We can get around and root in it a little bit more. For sure. I think that's somebody we're definitely going to need to (laughs) get around to. What what strikes me about Joe and all of our guests, and Joe in particular, why it surprises me is one, because of his age, and two, because of his profession. And that is he is insanely self-aware. And that lack of pretension, which is not common in, in writing and uh you know kind of hollywood i don't want to call him hollywood because he's not in hollywood but but in that show business world pretension is like you know unfortunately historically it's like part of the programming and he's he does not have that and his vulnerability around his experience and who he is and even talking about his uh identification with under earning i thought was really powerful declaration that is something I ran across in my own life some number of years ago and, and have never talked about it publicly. I've never talked to other people who, who have identified themselves as that, but I think it's probably a lot more common than we think. And that is someone who routinely puts themselves in positions to earn below their ability and their, um, their value that they bring. And, and he, I love that he's like kind of breaking through that. And the fact that he also talked about getting into success late in the game with writing, he didn't really start to buckle down until he was in his 40s. Thank God I'm 40 years old and finally taking my writing seriously. That gave me a, a huge ray of hope. <laughs> and and then on and on. I mean, that was like, I think, a, a statement of it's never too late. It is never too late to change your life. It's never too late to really pursue what lights you up. 
And it's never too late to take yourself seriously in your healing journey, wholeness, seriously. I love that he brought those words up. We never mentioned those things to him. Those were, yeah, yeah, his own language. And and he used it not only in the uh, context of a writer, but also in the context of people who are clearly hurting and um, and and trying to pursue something crazy with this stuff at the Capitol. Yeah. So, man, wh- I mean, that's like this stuff's magic. This is the healing talk. This is the reason I do all this stuff. This is the reason I have my own language around story and healing. You nailed it, man. Yeah, and I think you have to be careful, like with talking about masses of people, like, I don't know all the people who are at the Capitol. And I, 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 that's the only thing I would add to that is, is maybe, I mean, really, if you think about it, it's hard to talk about anybody beyond yourself and the people you know very closely. So I don't know what's going on over the Capitol and how those people are. I totally get what you all are saying. And I wouldn't say it sounds off base. Um, it's just hard to really say when you're talking about hundreds, uh, how many people are involved in that? I mean, across the country, tens yeah. of thousands, millions. Yeah. But um, it is a, that is one of my f- more favorite conversations is is when people start to use language around a, a the inner landscape of their mind and talking about how that may or may not be separate or uh, not linked up with their outer world. You know, and it's it's what people confront when they uh, confront emotion. It, you know, I think of the inner world as something that is um, uh, mapped out by things like belief, emotion, thoughts. I guess feelings would be emotion. Yeah. So thoughts, feelings, beliefs, and what does that look like? Those are amorphous, you know, things, but what if you turned them into a landscape and what if you gave character to different aspects of aspects of yourself? And this is what I was loving what you kept asking. And I too wanted to return the conversation to that conversation. And I know Joe is open to it, which is, Hey, how do you write your story? Yeah. Give me a second here. Cause this, this is something that I really, I want to work out. <laughs> yeah. Story writing as you and I are learning is a concentrated squeeze all the randomness and chaos or a lot of the randomness and chaos is, and meaninglessness of life, you know, is cut out and you you structure something down and you squeeze it down and it's heightened. Like stories are heightened life and they're they're that way for several reasons. They can teach us uh they can warn us from the as he was saying the negative parts they can they're entertaining and um and they're short and like you can you can take them in in a sitting right mm-hmm. and how do we take some of the story aspects and creating stories and create our own life in that same way and the primary thing that i think people that stops you from do that you said a couple of times today which is just that it's hard Writing is hard. Creativity is hard. Uh, and, and we have so much momentum behind us, Ronald, in life that to stop that, and maybe that momentum has been going for a long time and it's carved a, a really greased groove, a deep groove. And it, it, it's like you have to get out of, it's a lot of work just to get out of the groove into the, the blank, you know, new landscape that then is hard to find out you know, to carve out what you would really like to do and how to do it and how to live. 
Yeah, you're right. I, I, I was thinking about the often I think people are looking for safety versus novelty and adventure and newness. And, and, and there's a lot of different reasons. There's as many different reasons for that as there are different people. What, what, but I don't want personally, I don't want to get to the end of my life and go, man, that was really safe. I'm so glad I was safe. (laughs) You know, I, I probably because of my brain structure and my, um, all that is that I, um, I want to get to the end of it and, and know that I took appropriate risks for the kind of life that I want. And, and that's not satisfying to me to go, I had an office job or I did, you know, I, I don't want to pick on any, any kind of talk. Yeah. I don't want to, you know, Look. but I, but I, the men I speak to in my life on a daily basis are guys who've like, they've had the success of some, of some safe path or they took a spiritually safe path and both those paths to safety ended up being really lacking. And Joe maybe described a little bit different where he was like, I just thought things would happen. I just thought, you know, by, by just kind of showing up here and there, like stuff would just happen. And I never put a lot of purpose into it. Yeah. And I think that's the other thing you, a a character and he talked about this when he was talking about his students worrying about their story, they'd say something like, I don't have a story. He's like, no, you're not, you're writing about a person. You're writing about a character. And I think that's how he said it. And then you think back to what I was saying at the beginning of the podcast was, well, what does the character do? What does that th- person do? What are they going through that makes their life interesting? What are the, the adventures, pressures, dangers, challenges, obstacles that make that life really cool to watch that's what what changed morgan and i so much a long time ago is that we thought shit we get to choose we get to choose and we've got each other we've got the buddy system working here we can do this we can say let's go we we're going to decide together i know that's a huge luxury it's a giant privilege to have someone with you who's going to decide to take risks with you i know that's not a given and and we every day still continue to ask for more of a riskier path, an adventure. We, we, that's how we came up with the name of our business originally, Romance and Adventure. Like how to, and the question was, how do we live a life of true romance and meaningful adventure? And, and we wrote like a manifesto on it, actually. I haven't, I haven't put that manifesto in a bunch of years, but we actually came to like 12 different reasons, 12 different ways that we do that. Well, um, and see, that's what, that's, that's what, that's what I'm talking about when it comes to what you need to do to get not what I've need to, I can only speak to myself and you and I are very aligned. So, you know, I kind of speak to you too, but like you and Morgan, you sat down and you figured out what you wanted and you got it down to three words, really two: romance, adventure. Okay. Those can be vague things. Those can be fleshed out. Fine. That's between you and her, but Hey, it's a hell of a lot better than, I don't know, just, dot, 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 you know, yeah. like, boom, that's my, that's what I want. And that's what you do when you write a character. What does this character want? And then you do it again when you're writing a scene. What yeah. does this character want in this scene, specific to the scene, but also that's serving their greater arc? And you know what I mean? And yeah. and then you can, then you start to look and in story writing, we would actually put obstacles in front of that person, but life's got that covered in your life. They'll put obstacles. So all you really need to know is what you want. And then in the sundry different ways 
ways that you can um, apply that to where you live and who you're living with and, you know, all the options that life gives you. But it does take work. Yeah, a lot of work, a lot of intentionality. That's, I mean, as you were, thank you for saying all that. Cause as you were saying about talking, I, my, <laughs> the character I'm writing about right now, is like, oh shit, what does he want? And I know a lot man of stuff started coming up for me. That was good. Oh, it did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wait. yeah. Well, you, awesome. when you were saying that I'm like, awesome. well, what does my character want? And I, and I thought, oh, he wants, he wants, um, to, to know that he's a man. My character also, if people, no one knows what the hell we're talking about. You and I are in a writing group. I'm writing a book. You're writing a book. I have a main character and my main character ha- is, is going through a lot of difficult things in pursuit of what he wants. What he wants was number one, he wants to know he's a man because as a child, he was told he was not. He was told he's lacking in that. Number two, he wants to be in love because that feeling of acceptance was taken away from him as a child as well. And number three, he wants justice because of what happened to him as a young person. And so those things, I mean, I didn't know that until just now. So whoever's listening to this and Daniel, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) That's some good, it's good. And then I, I would think about what Joe would say or what a, a more professional writer than myself might say, you know, I would, I would wonder if you would want to, to, um, narrow that down to one of those three mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. or maybe one of those three things that in that you might find that one of those things contains the other two you know right. yeah. um but i think the questions like that and so you gotta do it in life what do i want and i yeah. i just and i mean for me it's like well fuck it let's have some fun it's work but it's work that's like on my own clock so i'm gonna get yeah. a bottle of wine for me you know like yeah. you're you're gen- you know sober and um uh, you get that thing, you set a, a situation up where you're comfortable and, and you, it's going to put you in a good place and maybe have a, a notepad and you write some ideas down and, or like that other thing that's been serving me really well, what are my values? That might be a good thing to know. And that maybe lead me toward a more crystallized idea of what I want, you know, and the way I look at it, Ronald is like, if, if it was more of a fantasy scene, I would be like, I would rent a big old hall, you know, like one of those big medieval halls with the fucking massive table. And I would just put all the stuff of my life in that room and on that hall, hmm. you know, all the lead and the gold and the bullshit and the like, fucked up halfway you know finished um aspects of my life and the wounds and the relationships and the place i live in the bag i would just set it all out there and then start parsing through it mm. and and look at it all as neutral you know and just be mm. like this is what i'm working with this is what i have to make the masterpiece of my life or mm. to make the story or whatever and then start having fun mm. Mm. Dude, that's great i think that's um a gift, an insane gift to think about all of those things that you have as neutral and also as agents of carrying you as a character th- forward into your story. Yeah. Man. Well said. Yeah. yeah. You look at them as, as maybe even not neutral, like maybe even do this. What if they're all perfect? You know, and I, I get that. I get yeah. that that's sketchy yeah. with some people. I don't mean to be, um, you know, if I, if I went out and was paralyzed tomorrow, I wouldn't be like, all right, sweet. Let's chuck that on the fucking Valhalla hall and let's figure out how I can just use that. Like F that man, it would ruin my life. Um, but you know, but it would also give you an opportunity, wouldn't it? It would give you an opportunity to say, how can I have maybe eventually? Yeah, I I get it. I think, I think anyone who goes through tragedy needs to mourn. There is a time to mourn. 
Yeah. And there is a time to, to, to be sad. I think though, that, you know, we, we were talking a little bit, we touched a little bit on like child um, molestation is what we, is what we were referring to earlier uh, with those guys at the Capitol. And, you know, the fact of the matter is one in five people had a unwanted sexual contact as a child. And that's a lot of fucking people, dude. And I'm one of those people. Yeah, that's, my my yeah. wife is one of those people. And and we have to say, well, are we going to continue to be angry and mad and upset and resentful and f- keep on pointing it, pointing to it and say, this fucked me up? It did at the at the time. I don't want to say it didn't. Or are we going to use that as an impetus and an agent to bring transformation and healing into our life and wholeness? Yeah. That's the question with everything, I think. Divorce, getting fucked over, losing everything, bankruptcy, whatever it might be. Like, is this, you know, sometimes it's our fault. Sometimes it's completely out of our hands and it happened to us anyway. That's that Viktor Frankl book again, man, Search for Meaning. That's that same thing. At some point in time, depending on your ability, okay, depending on what happened and your ability to metabolize it, at some point in time, I would think with almost all events in life, it is our, it's now on us. It's my responsibility to respond in a way that, um, is not resentful and is, and is accepting. I guess that's the best word is you accept it and you move forward. And, you know, we've all got our little things like you and I were talking earlier today and you were like, wow, thank you so much for saying that Daniel, I need to hear that. And in my mind, I'm like, yeah, easy for me to say, you could come right back with something that gets into my little soft center and I'm like, no, no, get the fuck out. You know, <laughs> that's just the nerve. <laughs> dude, but anyway, that's funny. That's great. Uh, man, th- th- dude, thank you for finding Joe. I mean, I know you guys have been friends for a long time, but that was such a great, um, idea to bring him on and, and I'm looking forward to having him back and finding other folks like him. Well, Hey brother, I'll leave it with this. If you can give me just one more minute. Yeah, of course. The reason he was on the show is because I was doing what I was just saying has worked for me is I was in Virginia with who is now my ex-wife, who who is following her own passion and at 42 years old was like, F this, I'm going to go back to college and I'm get my master's in story writing in a children's book writing. She mm-hmm. did it and she just recently graduated. I think she's graduated. Anyway, and so she was following her dream and then I was like there in Virginia with her and I thought, well... I wonder if I can audit a class at her college and I wonder if they have a screenwriting class. Cause that's something I'm interested in. And I called up and who, yes, we do. And yes, you can. And who's the professor, Joe. Wow. wow. <laughs> that's so cool. That's really cool. I love those moments. I think if we are careful, there are probably lots of moments like that for us who are on the path. And what I mean by on the path, are we looking for the next clue taking us to the next right place? And that's what you, you were be doing. Alert. You yeah. gotta be alert. That's true. Yep. And that and that gold like took you, it's continued to pay off. And my guess is it's gonna keep paying off, you know, that relationship with Joe. Like it was gold back then, <laughs> 2012. I know you guys have been spending a lot of time together on the phone discussing your writing, which I'm sure is insanely valuable. 
And yeah, it's like freaking having a, he could charge a hundred dollars an hour for our conversation. Oh, he phone. could charge way more than that. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell him. Unscratch that. <laughs> He's a $500 an hour guy. At least. At Screw least. that. Screw that. It would be, it would be worth it. It would, it yeah. would be worth it. That's how much, that's how much his advice the last few days has propelled my story and saved me months and months of wasting time doing things that aren't serving yeah. my end, you know? Yeah. Huge. Yeah. Even, even his encouragement for me to keep writing, you know, yeah. my stage, I'm like, okay, you know, you keep going, you keep going no matter what. So. Dude, I, I was just listening to Stephen King's uh, on writing and he was talking about how there's fiction writers that get their start when they're in their 50, 50s and 60s, man. Wow. wow. Dude, just, yeah. you're there, man. You're there. You're there. You're young. Yeah. Appreciate that. And thank you for uh, listening to him and putting our, our writing group together. Like, you know, our last group, I was just like <laughs> floating on freaking air afterwards. Um, Have you read anything that was uh, submitted yesterday yet? Yeah, I, I read uh, uh, Richard's piece, started to oh, get into it. And um, cool. and it was a heavy, heavy hitter, man. I was like thinking about oh, it a really? lot as I was falling asleep. I'm like, Oh wow! This is this is gonna be a story that's gonna. We need to have him on and talk about it. I I feel the same way. Good call. Yeah, I mean, um, to fill in the blanks for our listeners, uh, our friend was raised essentially by a drug dealer dealing family, and he was exposed to a lot of violence as a child, and and uh, he's been on a healing journey ever since. And and the part I read last night was like the first time he experienced physical trauma in some fashion and the healing journey from that. And it was, holy shit. Uh, really? Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, a page in, you know, I was like, damn, here we go. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, man, thank you. Good to see you. Um, and, and thanks to everybody for listening to kind of for signing. All right.